You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Naomi Klein is an award-winning author, journalist, and filmmaker. She's written for The Nation, The Guardian, and Harper's Magazine. She's written a book called No Logo, Taking Aim at the Brand Bullies. Her newest book is The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Thank you for joining me, Naomi. Happy to. Uh, I'd like to have you explain to me what you mean by an alternative history, which is how you describe the, the shock doctrine. Well, what I do in the shock doctrine is, is try to explain how we ended up with this um, really very radical version of capitalism that we are now seeing uh, you know, crash around the world because it is so deregulated. And I pose the question of, of how this ideology triumphed around the world, not just in the United States, but in Russia, Latin America. And the story we're usually told about how we ended up with this system, which the French call savage capitalism, as opposed to mixed economies that try to balance and regulate market forces. We're usually told that this process was democratic and peaceful. And so I call the book an alternative history because I'm telling a very different story. And what I'm zeroing in on in particular is the role that various forms of shocks, which is why it's called the shock doctrine, have played in advancing this very radical vision of the world. And the the shocks I'm referring to are everything from profound economic crises to coup d'etats to wars and natural disasters. And I look at how these various kinds of crises that destabilize countries are, have been harnessed to push through what economists call economic shock therapy, which is a rapid-fire transformation of an economy along free market lines. And you call this disaster capitalism. We, I think we typically think of this as maybe just happening in the third world when there's a, a tragedy or, or some kind of crisis or economic crisis mm-hmm. in the third world, and, and you give a lot of examples of that. Yeah, but it hasn't just been something that has taken place in the developing world. It started in Latin America, this kind of campaign or this experiment, really, in this radical form of way, a way to organize a society. The first laboratory for, well, Milton Friedman, the uh, University of Chicago economics professor, who is really the guru of Reaganism and Thatcherism, the first country to take his ideas seriously and put them into practice in the real world was Chile under Pinochet. And, and that happened because there was a group of economists, of Chilean economists, that had been brought to the University of Chicago on scholarships uh, paid for by the U.S. State Department and the Ford Foundation in the 1950s and 60s. And studying under Friedman and his very right-wing radical colleagues, they had you know, absorbed their ideas, ideas that had never actually been put into place in reality. And the coup in Chile, that shock, created the context when it was possible to implement these ideas in an extremely undemocratic way. Obviously, you had the overthrow of the elected government of Salvador Allende, and you also had Pinochet's regime, which was willing to use and did use enormous levels of force and terror to keep the population under control. 
really to to keep the left from rebelling against these policies. So Chile was the first laboratory for what I'm calling the shock doctrine or disaster capitalism, but it left Latin America, went to Eastern Europe. The shock of the collapse of the Soviet Union was another crisis that created the context, the economic crisis that accompanied the fall of communism. We saw this in Poland as well. Another, I think, really relevant example of the shock doctrine is inaction, um, relevant to the moment we're living right now, was the Asian economic crisis in 1997-98, because it was an economic crisis that shared some similarities to what we're living through right now. It started with the popping of a housing bubble in Thailand, and then just fear spread through the market. And then what happened is that the International Monetary Fund really held the economies of South Korea, Thailand, Indonesia, ransom. They desperately needed a stabilizing loans, and rather than inject that liquidity into the market, something we hear so much about these days, um, rather than doing it quickly, they refused to move quickly and negotiated these sweeping structural, what are called structural adjustment programs, which forced these countries to eliminate protections for their national industry. And interestingly, what happened after that is that actually the crisis deepened. It didn't have the stabilizing effect that was promised. And then a group of companies that included Morgan Stanley, Citibank, the Carlyle Group, many companies that are in so much trouble right now and happily taking a U.S. bailout went to Asia and bought up the crown jewels of the what were called the Asian tigers at fire sale prices. Now, but it hasn't been, as, as you mentioned, just limited to other countries. We recently saw an experience of disaster capitalism right here in the United States, didn't we? I think throughout the Bush era, we've seen many examples of the deliberate um, exploitation of states of shock. And when I say deliberate, I want to be very clear that I'm not saying that the government is conspiring in back rooms to create these crises so that they can be exploited. When you deregulate the economy, when you have a society that is really puts profit and economic growth before all else, it's actually a very unstable system. It's a very crisis-prone system. You have a casino economy that is going to move from one bubble to the next. You're going to so you're going to have booms and busts and a steady stream of market shocks. You encourage wild speculation on currency and on commodities, all of which create shocks to the economy when they go up and down. And then you have wars over natural resources. You have blowback from those wars. So I'm not saying that the crises are being deliberately created, but I am saying that there is an acute understanding, and this is you know, what I think the book really contributes to the discussion, is I spend a lot of time quoting top-level policymakers and economists in their own words, admitting that they need crisis in order to push through these very unpopular policies of deregulation and privatization, austerity measures, and so on. So there is an acute understanding among our elites, not just in the United States, but around the world, that these crises are moments to pounce, moments to act. And, of course, the Bush administration certainly behaved that way after September 11th, concentrating power in the executive branch, but also launching the war on terror as really a new economy in privatized homeland security. The war on terror really has been an experiment in outsourcing, privatizing uh, aspects of, of government. There were 
really considered off-limits to the private sector, like border control, surveillance, spying. So this has been a huge industry, and I don't, I don't think that we have taken it seriously enough as a new economy. We, we talk about it as a failed security strategy sometimes, but we don't talk about it as a successful economy, especially in times when many other parts of our economies have been stagnant. This has been an area of reliable economic growth. But as you say, you know, we, we've been living through a more recent example of, of the exploitation of shock, and, and I think people have seen a lot of parallels between the ways in which the Bush administration has used the ongoing economic crisis and the way in which they responded to September 11th and the climate of fear that led to the invasion of Iraq. Uh, You know, a lot of people compared Paulson's $700 billion rescue plan as a kind of economic equivalent of the Patriot Act. And we also saw similarities between the way in which Giuliani was presented as this sort of godlike figure of trust uh, after September 11th who would protect everyone. And the literal coronation of Henry Paulson you know, on the cover of Newsweek, King Henry. And so I think what's been interesting is that these tactics have, um, have been used so often by this administration. And there's so much, I think, rightful suspicion of how this administration manipulates and exploits these states of shock that people are becoming more resistant to these tactics, and that's very important, very gratifying. You quote Stephen Haggard, uh, the worst of times give rise to the best of opportunities for those who understand the need for fundamental economic reform. And I would put, quote, air quotes around reform. Yeah, reform is a funny word because the implication is that it's progressive reform. It's, it's a move forward. But the, the reform that they're referring to is actually an unmaking. You know, Thomas Frank talks about... Contemporary conservatism really being a wrecking crew. Really, it's really a project of undoing the gains that have been made in countries around the world since another crash, another shock, the Great Depression, gave way to many, many progressive policies and innovations. With that comes, uh, as Thomas Frank talks about the the unmaking of the government, which which you just mentioned, because. Uh, our concept of government has always been one of the main functions is that government handles our security. They handle the, the, the armies and navies and mm-hmm. the police to protect us. And as you pointed out, that's all just been outsourced and privatized. It's all been outsourced and privatized with no discussion and, and no debate. And that is the utility of a state of crisis, of a state of emergency. You know, I think that if the Bush administration had subjected these policies to uh, open discussion, there would have been a great deal of reticence about the idea of injecting the profit motive, for instance, into the field of surveillance, into prison interrogation. But the utility of a crisis, and, and the war on terror is an ongoing state of crisis, the way it's been formulated by the Bush administration. I mean, what that means is, is that you can avoid those messy debates and those messy discussions. Mm-hmm. Power is centralized, and under cover of a state of emergency, of a never-ending state of emergency, you're able to do pretty much what you want. So we really only find out how much has been privatized when there's a scandal. We find out about it retroactively. You know, A, a really good example of this is the Abu Ghraib scandal, when those horrible photographs were leaked to the press, and there was uh, a debate in this country and around the world about torture. It emerged out of that that some of the people in those photographs 
um, engaged in, in those abusive practices were actually not working for, were not employees uh, of the military, that they were private contractors working for Khaki and Titan. So it was part of that scandal, and only really because of that scandal that people said, what? There are private contractors engaging in prison interrogation. I mean, that just shows what an effective democracy avoidance strategy it is. And yet, I think that many, many Americans assume that it is the government who, who's providing these services. But what, what I show in the book is that Iraq really created a, an economic boom for this industry. And the worse things get in Iraq, the more privatized the war becomes and the more functions the private contractors take over. So when the war began, you had one private contractor for every 10 U.S. soldiers, which was already a very high ratio, much higher than during the, the first Gulf War, when there was one contractor for every 100 U.S. soldiers. But now in Iraq, there are many more private contractors than there are U.S. soldiers. We don't even have a recent figure, but the most recent figure was that there was 180,000 private contractors in Iraq and 150,000 soldiers. So what that means is that as things have gotten worse, the private contractors have done more business and also taken on functions that they had not taken on at the beginning. So there's been a kind of a mission creep for the private sector, and Iraq has really been their laboratory. And I say the word laboratory because many of these companies like Blackwater and Halliburton are really looking to diversify now that they've gotten a taste of these sort of super profits. And I think it's important to understand that this is really not capitalism. This is really not the free market because it's all private, it's all public money that's financing it. They're not competing in the free market. And they're, as we know, really not even competing for the contracts. The contracts are no bid. For the most part, their profits are built in on these cost-plus contracts. So it's really a trough of, of public money being transferred into private hands to perform the job of the state, to perform the job of the government, but now at a profit. And so I think that there's a real continuity between the fact that the Bush administration spent seven years creating this industry, expanding the contractor economy, which is really kind of a parallel privatized government. And now, as their sort of final act, their final coup de grace, they transfer these hundreds of billions of dollars of private debt into public hands. And that's why I sort of object to this way in which we're framing the current Bush administration re response as a departure from their usual belief in free markets, because I don't think that they ever believed in free markets. I think they've mm -hmm. really acted as crony capitalists quite consistently. Now, you've re recently uh, written uh, an essay for the Huffington Post called Now is the Time to Resist. And, and I think there's a couple things that come out of that. Um, one thing is that what we're looking at essentially a corporate version of the New Deal. It's it's the New Deal for the corporations. I totally agree, and I actually just wrote that. <laughs> you know, even if we look at the Paulson plan mm -hmm. um, and how you know they announced this seven hundred billion dollar pool of money that they're going to use to buy toxic debt. But then simultaneously, they also announce once they get it passed that they can't do it themselves. That the Treasury does not have the expertise to be the world's biggest hedge fund, right, which is essentially what they've, what they've turned the government into. So they have to outsource. Um, and now who will they outsource this job to? Well, they say that the only people who have the relevant experience in trading in this toxic debt are, wouldn't you know it, the very companies that um, have been doing this all along, i.e. who got us into this mess. They allow two days 
for companies to submit their proposals. And they say openly, because it's an emergency, we are not going to be able to have open bidding. So, you know, I've been tracking the development of what I'm calling the disaster capitalism economy from one trough to the next of public money, right? You know, it started with 9-11 and the homeland security industry, which is now a $200 billion industry, which is more than Hollywood and the music industry combined. Then it was Iraq, the, the destruction and reconstruction of Iraq, all privatized, all done for profit. And then we saw many of these companies diversifying into natural disasters and looking at climate change actually as a market opportunity, more and more natural disasters, the response to this can be privatized, and we saw how New Orleans became a kind of a laboratory for the same companies that had made so much money in Iraq, like Blackwater, Halliburton, Bechtel, now you know, providing temporary shelter, providing security, and so on. I'm realizing now that the next frontier for disaster capitalism, the next trough, if you will, is capitalism itself. It's saving capitalism from itself but now, once again, on these no-bid contracts. So, yeah, it is a corporate new deal. It's a new deal for bankers. It's a public works project for bankers. It's just extraordinary. It's extraordinary. I think, I think that, that um, you know, the Bush administration is behaving so unethically that people almost can't believe their eyes. And it's all out in the open. I mean, it's a little bit similar to the way in which people almost couldn't process the conflict of interest between Cheney and Halliburton, right? I mean, here you have the vice president who is the engine for the war in Iraq, having come directly from Halliburton, hung on to his stock options, and create, you know, pushes a war of choice that ends up funneling $20 billion to Halliburton and credible levels of corruption in those contracts, as we know. But it was almost like we could only hold on to that information for like short periods of time because it challenged so deeply what people want to believe about their leaders. And I mean, look at where we're at right now with Henry Paulson. It comes straight to the Treasury from Goldman Sachs. At Goldman Sachs, he was known as Mr. Risk because he accumulated so many of these bad debts himself. Um, the person who he has appointed to administer the $700 billion, a young man named Kashkari, who is only 35 years old, six years out of his MBA, um, and he also came straight from Goldman Sachs. So this whole deal, which saves Goldman Sachs, was um, you know, engineered by people who were just working at Goldman Sachs a few years ago, and by the way, are going to be back in the private sector within months. And so the conflicts of interest are, are so profound that I think we almost just the mind rebels uh, against really focusing on it. Well, I want, to, want you to talk a little bit about uh, Newt Gingrich's proposal, mm-hmm. the 18 points he has that will, he to, is trying to use this crisis to push through. Well, he is, and many others are. Um, and this is, you know, I, I start the book with a quote from Milton Friedman who talks about how that it takes a crisis to achieve what he calls real change. And he says that our basic function, re- referring to believers in his radical ideology um, of market fundamentalism, he says our basic function is to keep the ideas available until the politically impossible becomes politically inevitable. So I've really been focusing on you know, influential people connected to the Republican Party who are really keeping ideas lying around in this moment. And, and the ideas that are lying around are, are really the same old ideas. It's just that they get repackaged um, for every crisis. So, you know, one of the ideas is privatizing Social Security. Another idea is 
is eliminating the capital gains tax. Another one is the flat tax. Another one is offshore oil drilling. Now, these ideas you know, get recycled. We heard uh, about them immediately after Hurricane Katrina. They were packaged as the way in which to revive the Gulf Coast. Now they're being repackaged as the way to get the United States out of the recession that was caused by this very ideology, this mania for deregulation. We're really seeing the ideologues line up with their ideas lying around. And I think, you know, what's important about this is, you know, already with the bailout, we've seen all kinds of corporate goodies attached, right? I mean, they only got it through the Senate because they managed to tack on more than $100 billion in tax cuts. And uh, there's, you know, other gifts to the private sector have included a, a looser application of, what, of what's called mark-to-market accounting, which is a form of accounting that requires more transparency from corporations because it, it requires that they value their assets at what they could sell their assets for at any given moment. And, um, and this, this, this forces corporations to be more transparent in their, account, in their accounting, which is something that I think we, we realize in this moment is very important. But interestingly, lobbyists have descended on Washington to say, you know, we're under so much financial pressure, um, we, need to, um, you know, we need to have an easier ride. So, so we, don't, you know, we need lower taxes um, and we need fewer regulations which is just incredible because it's actually deepening the very policies that created the crisis in the first place. Well, uh, given all, all this uh, obviously bad news, there is, I think, uh, some rays of hope in, in that the uh, population is really having a won't-get-fooled-again uh, reaction to all this. We, having been told we had to go into Iraq immediately because of weapons of mass destruction, which mm-hmm. have never showed up, when they told us that we had to um, spend $700 billion immediately. I think a lot of people think have been subjected to those kind of pressure tactics by, you know, hard-boiled salesmen trying to get them to buy a bad car. And I think a lot of people are, are not buying it as quickly as they did in other times. They aren't. And I think that there was a really inspiring level of rejection and, uh, in, in response to the $700 billion bailout. People called their Congress people. They, they, they don't want to be bailing out the people who created this mess. And that's why the vote was defeated um, in Congress. But, of course, they, th- this administration did not accept the verdict of the democratic process. They brought it to the Senate after being defeated by Congress, which was just extraordinary. They loaded it down with all of this pork and then sent it back to Congress. And, you know, now what we're seeing on the market is actually that um, – that, that people's original response, which was that this is a bad plan, was actually correct. The $700 billion announcement that was supposed to stabilize everything and send a message of security to the market has not worked at all. It looks like they're now going to have to do what many were proposing at the time, which was buy equity stakes in the banks. But, you know, this is a much more expensive way of going about it. And so, yeah, I think that that was inspiring at first. But, you know, what isn't inspiring was the manipulation of the democratic process, the fact that political leaders in the Senate, in the Congress, and in the executive branch did not care that the public was had rejected this. And, you know, I, I hope that one of the lessons that people take from that is that they should place more trust in their instincts in, that mo- um, in this moment, um, that if it looks and smells that bad, it is that bad. And I say this because I think one of the, one of the really dangerous parts 
of an economic shock like this is just the complexity of it. You know, what's dangerous to our democracy, what's dangerous to, you know, our engagement as citizens is that feeling that it is something is so overwhelming, so complex that we really just have to trust the experts. The crisis that we're in right now was created by the experts at every level, and it was also created by a kind of tyranny of complexity, right? These overly complex financial instruments that were hiding enormous levels of fraud and that it turned out nobody could really understand. I mean, there was an incredible piece in the New York Times recently re-examining Alan Greenspan's legacy mm-hmm. and the sort of deification of Greenspan, right, throughout the 90s and actually till quite recently, and blaming Greenspan rightly for so much that has gone on because he was such a fan of these complex derivatives. You know, what was interesting about that piece is that they quote so many top-level lawmakers and regulators admitting that they were afraid to challenge Alan Greenspan, that he had this mystique around him, right, the maestro, the oracle. You know, he made this everything so complex, but he also projected this image of total understanding of total confidence. You know, when we don't understand something and we're afraid to ask, you know, that's really corrosive to our democracy if it's central to the health of our societies. Um, so I think we need to be very, very suspicious of these people that position themselves as the all-knowing experts and trust our instincts a lot more. What can we average citizens do to help get ourselves out of this mess? Um, well, <laughs> that's, you know, that's a really big question. I, you know, I do think that there's a kind of back-to-basics that has to happen in the economy. Barack Obama is quite right when he says the fundamentals of the economy are not strong. And if we think about another moment, another crisis, the last time the world faced an economic crisis of this scale was the Great Depression. We have not reached that level yet, thankfully, but I think it's important to remember that that crisis generated a huge amount of progressive change, of progressive reform, and it did so because regular people were not afraid to educate themselves and to say, you know, look, laissez-faire economics created this crisis. It's our turn now, and to propose everything from you know huge public works projects that would put people back to work, cooperatives as opposed to handouts, public housing, and let's remember that at the core of this crisis that we're living right now is this ideology that home ownership is the only way to get low-income people into homes, not rent control, not public housing or co-ops, right? All of these progressive ways of responding to, to the need for housing in the past have all been um, rejected in favor of home ownership and this crazy kind of home ownership where people without the ability to even make a small down payment were given mortgages and then those mortgages were speculated on by Wall Street. I mean, that is literally at the heart of the crisis. So we do need to go back to basics. We do need to simplify our economy. We need to invest in the real economy. And I think we need to really reject this tyranny of complexity and and get back to those basics. You know, people know what it is that they need to come out of this crisis. They need jobs. They need homes. And, you know, one of the things that's so striking to me is this idea of risk. Because one of the myths of capitalism, I suppose, is that the people who who win the greatest rewards, win them because they're willing to take the greatest risks, right? People like Henry Paulson, who was known as Mr. Risk, when he was at Goldman Sachs and, you know, left worth an estimated $700 million personally. What we're seeing is the the big winners in this economy 
are actually really protected from risk. They protect themselves with golden parachutes. They protect themselves with these huge bonuses that are paid out year after year. And they protect themselves by buying the political process and knowing that if they really screw up bad, they're going to get bailed out. I mean, you see this sort of, I call them the coddled capitalist class, and I called them that even before we found out that AIG executives took themselves to a spa right after the bailout, right? I mean, so these are people actually who have pioneered something like no-risk capitalism, and they're incredibly risk-protected from risk. But at the same time, the economic model that has been so profitable for the elites has made life so much more risky for millions and millions of people. Um, the, the, the people are living such precarious lives, you know, one illness away from homelessness. The offloading of risk has really been from the elites to low-income people, the people who now face foreclosure. So I feel like this is an opportunity because we have seen the wealthy coddle themselves and protect themselves from risk, you know, in, in such flagrant form that I, I feel like that the time to argue for the right to a real national health care program, I mean, I'm Canadian, so I'm in favor of single-payer, and I know that it works. You know, the, the right to be protected, to have some kind of a social safety net, to live in a less brutal society, um, now that we have seen how the elites take care of each other and, and build such elaborate social safety nets for themselves, I think it's a time when the, we can really win these arguments in a way that has really not been possible since Reagan. I've been speaking with Naomi Klein. Her new book is The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. Thank you for speaking with me, Naomi. Thank you. It's been fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.